You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. We're in Malachi. It's kind of pertinent, prescient. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, the last thing we hear from God in his inspired word before Jesus' birth, happening on the 23rd, a couple of days before Christmas. Are you with me? It kind of feels like something that we should be doing this morning. So... I need you to jump in with me, and we're going to jump right in at the very beginning in Malachi chapter 1 and verse 1. Here's what it says. A pronouncement, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. It's a pertinent name. It's an appropriate name. Malachi means my messenger, and Malachi is God's messenger to his people. Let me give you the context for his message. We remember, right? You've you've got the history down by now. The the people of Israel were divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. We know that the northern kingdom of Israel was smoked, right? Was smoked by the Assyrians. They came in, destroyed it. The southern kingdom of Judah kept going on for a little while, didn't learn the lesson that they were supposed to learn from the rebellion of the northern kingdom that ended in their discipline by God at the hands of the Assyrians. They didn't learn that lesson they themselves were destroyed and exiled by the Babylonians. Uh, they, God told them that was going to last for 70 years, which is exactly how long it lasted before uh, the Persian Empire came in, destroyed the Babylonian Empire. This is the way the world used to work, just conquering, conquering, right? All over the place. The Persians have come in, destroyed the Babylonians, and they have decided to let the people of Israel go back to their Land, which is in ruins. We heard about this when we preached through the book of Nehemiah about the fact that God's people came back to God's place in order to reconstruct God's temple. We have seen through the minor prophets, though, that since they got back there, they were a lot more concerned about building their own houses than building God's house. And he isn't super impressed by that. At this point, though, when we finally we've got to Malachi, this is about 100 years after that point, and they have actually built the temple. It's kind of the, the reject shop version of the original temple. Um, it's not great, but they've done it, right? They've, they've, they've made this place for God to dwell with them. And here's the upside. Right? There's, there's always at least one positive from these prophets. The upside is that for the first time in 12 prophets, and it seems like the first time in hundreds of years, there seem, it seems like, according to Malachi, these people aren't participating in idolatry like their, the previous generations did. Remember, we had that whole big issue from the beginning. We had this whole big issue with God's people worshipping Baal, worshipping the stars, worshipping the drains, like worshipping the animal, worshipping what, whatever they could find to worship. They were kind of hedging their bets. We'll worship Yahweh, but we'll also worship these other things just to make sure our crops grow and we have kids and that kind of thing. That has been a constant thorn in their flesh and a constant cause for God's jealousy to be aroused. Remember, he's jealous for them because they belong to him. And so when they go after these other gods, it's like they're going and sleeping with other women. They are betrothed to him. They are actually wed to him by covenant. And so he is jealous for them. It seems like now, according to Malachi, it seems like we've put that behind us. They've got their kind of okay temple and they're using it 
not for the worship of other gods. The problem is that what they're doing in that temple and what characterizes their spiritual life is actually just as bad as the idolatry that characterized previous generations. In fact, it's probably more insidious. At least with idolatry, if you're bowing down to Baal, it's really obvious that you're off the mark. What they're doing is much more insidious. What they're doing is empty religion. What they're doing is, is dead religion. What they're doing is, 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 has the form of true worship without any substance. What they're doing is what we call nominal, nominalism, right? This is turning up to church because, I don't know, it's Christmas, that kind of thing. And if that's you this morning, I, I'm not judging you, I love you, but that's what he's talking about. We're just here because, I don't know, it's what we do. There's no, there's no substance to it. There's no heart. And just as in the marriage context, remember we keep referring to marriage as kind of a, an analogy for God's relationship to his people, just as when in marriage there is no heart, there is no love, there is no, there's no intentionality in relationship, that relationship falls apart. It becomes meaningless. So it is with God's people and their relationship to him. Check it out. You see a little bit of this in chapter 1 and verse 6 to 10, this, this dead religion. Oh, before we get here, just so you understand the, the, the kind of pattern of the way that Malachi writes, through this book he, he writes in terms of six disputations. That is, God says to his people, you're doing this. They say, no, we're not. We're, we're fine. And then he says, no, you really are doing this and proves it to them. So it's, that's the, the pattern it takes. We're not going to work through all of it. We don't have time. But here we go. First thing, God says to his people, a son honours his father verse 6 of chapter 1, and a servant his master. But if I am a father, where is my honour? And if I am a master, where is your fear of me, says the Lord of armies to you priests who despise my name? Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? By presenting defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you, you ask? When you say the Lord's table is contemptible, when you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or show you favour? Asked the Lord of armies. And now plead for God's favour. Will he be gracious to us? Since this has come from your hands, will he show any of you favour? Asked the Lord of armies. This is the nature of their worship. There's no heart. Right? Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. They're not treasuring worship, and it's evident by the fact that they're not sacrificing the animals that they should, pure animals without blemish, showing the, the, the honour that God is due, showing that he is worthy of their best. They're, they're just taking the animals that would have died anyway, and we'll kill, we'll kill them, we'll sacrifice them. No big loss, Right? He brings this up later, and we won't go into this, but he says, God says to them, why are you robbing me? You're not giving your tithe to the temple. He sees that as them robbing from him what he is due. So God is due our best because God is the most worthy, magnificent, glorious being in the universe. And so he sees this half-hearted worship as a betrayal 
of what he is due. This kind of nominalism, turning up to church because it's Sunday morning, turning up to church because that's the way I was raised, that, that kind of ritual without heart, that form without substance, it's exactly the same thing, like what he's talking about here, it's exactly the same as what characterises nominalism today. And nominalism tends to express itself in a preoccupation with a focus on the form of things, the exterior of things. I focus on what I do, whether I'm kneeling or standing or whatever, rather than what's happening in here. I focus on what the guy at the front is wearing versus what he's saying. Right? That's what nominalism is. It focuses on the, the exterior and makes that the main thing. I'm not, saying that is, I'm not saying that's not worth something. I'm not saying it's not worth thinking about how, what we do with our bodies, whether we raise our hands or kneel or whatever. We're going to invite you to do something with your body in sharing the Lord's Supper later on. What I'm saying is when that thing, that exterior thing becomes the main thing, then you know you've, you've lost something. So focus on preoccupation with ritual and exterior things, the form of things. And today, as it was then, this is normally enabled by, precipitated by bad leadership. You normally end up with ritualism and nominalism where there's been weak leadership, where there's been bad leadership. Either the leaders themselves are nominal, so why would you care? Or that the leaders have seen a tendency towards nominalism and just thought, we'll be fine, we'll let it go. So this is is the same then as it is today. That's why he turns on the priests in verse 7 and 8 of chapter 2. Stay with me, guys. He says, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should desire instruction from his mouth because he is the messenger of the Lord of armies. You, on the other hand, you priests, have turned from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have violated the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of armies. So rather than be the kind of leaders that people want to gather around and say, we want to hear from you, you've got the words of life. What you're saying to us is the most important thing we're going to hear this week. Rather than that, the people have no regard for what the, the priests are saying because what they're saying is useless. In fact, it's worse than useless, it's causing people to stumble. So you have bad teachers who are just boring and uninteresting and not captivated by what they're talking about. And then you have something far worse, which is an intentional desire to cause people to stumble. Rather than building people up, you're actually tearing people down with your teaching. And I'm saying that kind of nominalism that plagued Malachi's church is plaguing our church. I mean, the church in the world today. And here's what I mean, right? By ritualism, that can be, yeah, in a cathedral, guys in robes, incense, and everything being about these external things. That's the substance of it. Or it can be in a warehouse with smoke and lights and, and everything in between. 
Because a preoccupation with the external can happen in any of these environments, right? Or how about our church? I don't know. I'm just thinking now. What's the preoccupation going to be in our church? We don't have stained glass to get all absorbed in, but what, like, what do we have? I don't know. A preoccupation with whether the preaching was any good, whether the, the musicians played my favorite songs, was the, the coffee afterwards to my liking. Like the, all of these things, and it sounds ridiculous, but all of these things, all these things are prone to capture our affections rather than what should be capturing our affections, which is the glory, the majesty, the beauty, the worthiness of Jesus. So this is like, sure, this is about them, but it's also a warning to us, to us as people and to our leaders, to our, to our pastors, to those who would teach us. So all of this, all this, right, this, this disputation that he's having with his people, all this brings us back to Jesus. You know that by now, right? All of the minor prophets, they all bring us back to Jesus. What they were talking about had more meaning than what they knew. There was more to what they said than meets the eye. And this, what Malachi is saying to us and to his people, is meant to point us to Jesus. You're going to see this great fulfillment, this great sort of, um, uh, yeah, fulfillment is a good word. It's a, it's a fulfillment in what Jesus said about what Malachi was pointing to. So the, where my mind went was to John chapter 4. Remember, Jesus has this fascinating interaction with a woman. In the first case, shouldn't have happened. He shouldn't have been alone with a woman. He shouldn't have been talking to a woman. He just busted all of those um, all of those, uh, you know the word I'm looking for, all of those um, conventions and norms, stereotypes, and another word. Um, um, he busted all those things because he had this, this, he had this collision with this woman that was God-ordained, and he wanted us to be able to listen in to what he said because it was really important. What did he say? Well, she said, first of all, sir... I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Now stop there. This, this, is, this, is, the, this is what the human heart does, right? It was true of the people of, of Israel, Malachi is speaking to. It's true of this woman. It's true of us today. We tend towards focusing on the externalities. That's what she's done. Worship for her means location. We, we say, you know, our fathers, we, we worshipped on this mountain. You say you need to worship in Jerusalem. We always tend towards externalities, to tribalism, right? What, what denomination are you? Does that mean we're on the same team? Or like, We do this all of the time. That's what she's doing. Jesus is about to pull the rug out from underneath that. Verse 21, he replies... Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here. Like here because I'm here, Jesus says. An hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. This is the opposite of nominalism. It's the opposite of, an, of a, a preoccupation with externalities. This is spirit and truth. And this, my friends, is our goal in these meetings. Remember, we've talked about these different environments that our church happens in. We've got that circle, the shared table next Sunday, shared table Sunday, stay at home, don't come to church, have people around to your house, opening homes in the love of Jesus. Then we have, skip over to the last one, square, public square ministry, like this afternoon, opening our church to the public, engaging with the public with the love that Jesus has already showed to us, right? In the middle there, we have this triangle. That's about the gathered church. It's a triangle because the focus is upward. Upward. All of our attention in this meeting should be focused on the glory, supremacy, beauty of Jesus. All right? And that's what he's saying here. The Father wants people like that. He wants people like that in this church who worship in spirit and in truth. I've got this little quote from our good buddy, Johnny Pipes. This is what he says. The nature of true, true worship is worship that, that does two things. Right? Let's just think about this in our context. It expresses the feeling of God's value and greatness and it seeks to sustain the congregation in that same spiritual sense of God's immense worth and beauty. All of that is brilliant. See, all of the focus is God's value, greatness, immense worth and beauty. That is what worship is. And that's this thing we're doing here. And it's all of life, all about Jesus. Spirit and truth. It's, it's the opposite of I'm here because it's Sunday at 10. I'm here because it's Christmas time. So Israel says, all right, you want us to love you. How have you loved us? They make this accusation, this disputation. How have you loved us? Verse 17 of chapter 2. Not verse 17 of chapter 2. Hang on. I've lost, I've lost my way. Verse 2 and 3 of chapter 1. Back it up a little bit. All right, here we go. Verse 2 and 3. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? What a thing to say to God. Yeah? How have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. I'm going to spend very short amount of time on this because we have done this a lot in the last 18 months. But what God is saying here is, this is how I've proved my love to you. I chose you. I chose you when I had no reason to. I 
unconditional election. We've been through this. We talked last week about how the apostles speak of God's love being proved to us in, in the sending of his son to die for us. That is true. And in this case, God says, in addition to that, you need to know, I love you. I've proved my love for you. I've demonstrated my love for you because I chose you. I chose you and I didn't choose Esau. Paul will go in in Romans 9, right, and say, there was no reason for God to choose one, not the other. They hadn't done anything yet. While the twins were still in their mother's womb, God showing his electing love, chose Jacob and not Esau. And Paul, again, in Ephesians, speaks of this in terms of this proving God's love to us, right? So in Ephesians 1, he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, so as he chose Jacob before they were born, he chose us before anything was made, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And I know we've been through this a whole lot. This idea of God choosing some and not others makes some of us question God's love in all of this. But it's clear, at least from the Bible's perspective, this is one of the main reasons, the main ways he shows us and demonstrates to us his love. In love, he predestined us. That's about all he says to that accusation. So we're going to move on. They say, okay, you, you've, you've said that you've loved us, but why, why then have you abandoned us? You say you love us, why have you abandoned us? Now let's go to chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 17. Malachi says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you ask, how have we wearied him? When you say, everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and he is delighted with them, or else where is the God of justice? And further, in uh, chapter 3, verse 14, you have said it is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of armies? So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. So they're saying, why, why do good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to God's people? I thought God was meant to be God of justice. If any judge let people get away with this stuff, he would be sacked. Where is the God of justice? And, and you know what? I get this. I get where they're coming from. Just take 10 consecutive seconds to think through your own life experience. This makes sense. Only the good die young. That's a bit of an overstatement, but it kind of, we, we, we jive with that, right? Yeah. Where is the God of justice? What is going on in the world around us? Look at the news for like, if you can bear it, look at the news for half an hour. Where is the God of justice? Here's what I think is going on here. Here's why the Lord is wearied by this. It's not, the issue is not that they're saying good stuff happens to bad people and bad stuff happens to good people. That is self-evident. 
And it's actually throughout the scriptures. Read the Psalms. This is a continual theme. Book of Ecclesiastes, Proverbs. The issue is not whether good people, bad things happen to good people and bad people prosper. The issue is that they're saying good things happen to bad people and bad things are happening to us, good people. The issue is one of character categorization, right? Those bad people out there are doing well and us good people, we're suffering. The issue is one of self-identification. They are not the good people that they're talking about. Here's the way that we can phrase this. Bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people like me. I didn't get this until last night, right? I, uh, I, I, I said to India, we're going to go for a little walk together. We're going to have some time to hang out. And she said, okay, but it's not a walk, it's a date. And I was like, okay. And so we went on a little date, date walk. And, uh, and I asked her this question. I said, um, what, would you, what do you think God should say if someone came to him and said, you're meant to be good, but good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? And she said, first of all, everyone deserves to live a good life, a happy life. And then she said, if people do bad things, they might get a consequence They might get a punishment. But, she said, it's up to God to punish them. We should love them because they are still God's people. And that's when it clicked to me. Yes, they are God's people. That is, God's people are the ones doing evil. Are you you with me? We're not the good people that bad things are happening to. We're the bad people who are being shown grace upon grace, unmerited favour from God. This is what should happen, right? Everyone look right at me. When you're you're sitting down, just project my experience onto you, your culture might be different. When I'm sitting down on Christmas Day and in front of me there is roast pork and, 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 and roast potatoes with little crunchy bits on them and cold Beer, when I sit down in front of that, what I should do, what should happen almost automatically is I should say, this is insane. How can God be so good to me? I know my heart. I know how prone I am to wander. I know how often I fall short of the glory of God and yet I have this Praise Jesus for his grace. That would be a good grace to say. There's a reason we call it grace, right? Because the penny drops and you realise you have all this and you deserve none of it. That's how we should view injustice in the world. It's a total perspective 
shift. And yes, the day is coming and all of the prophets have spoken of it, that great day, the day of the Lord, when God comes and makes all things right and punishes the wicked and rewards the righteous. And that day is coming. But in the meantime, we should be constantly driven back to thanksgiving that God is so gracious to us in spite of who we are and what we've done. Friends, this is why, this is why we have to keep coming back to this. This is why our only hope on that day, that day of the Lord that he's going to speak about in a minute, our only hope on that day when the wicked will be made like stubble, our only hope on that day is if we have Christ's righteousness. Because if you want to put yourself like they have in the good people camp, and you're just persevering because you're good even though bad stuff's happening to you, if you rely on that being in your favour, you're done. All of the prophets agree, you're done. Destroyed, utterly. But if there is one, at least one, who will give you his perfect righteousness, then you can be assured of security and salvation. As Christians, we believe that that one is Jesus and that his grace is to freely give us the gift of his righteousness. Praise God, right? To those who would hope to find refuge in their own goodness. This is what Malachi says. He's like, oh, you want a God of justice? All right, here we go. Chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. See, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. That's John the Baptist. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in, See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies, but who can endure the day of his coming and who will be able to stand when he appears for he will be like a refiner's fire and like launderer's breach. That bleach, that's the point. He's coming. He's coming to do justice, but do you guys really think you can stand before him? You are mightily mistaken. No one can stand before the perfect judge, only those who have been given his perfection. So this is the danger of wanting a God of justice to come. The danger is he might judge you, or in Malachi's words, he will judge you. This reminded me of something that happened. I was 19 years old. I had my license. I was a bad driver. And by that I mean I could drive really, 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 really fast. I was driving cars since I was 12 years old. We had a property. We had cars that we bought and did up and drove around. So I was good at the driving. But I was good at the really fast driving until I wasn't good at the really fast driving and I hit a pole really hard. That's another story. I've still got injuries. Kids, don't drive too fast. Mums, school time, don't drive too fast, all right? I'm a skateboarder. I see you every day. Stop it. Um, so anyway, what happened was my friend lived in Donvale. I would drive to his house every day after school. First mistake my parents made, letting me get my license. 
while I was in year 12, in March. All right, so drove to his house every day. He lived on a racetrack. You know, in Donvale, there's all these beautiful racetrack roads. Fly around there. His neighbours got irritated by us driving really fast through there, as they should have. It was not, not a good pattern of behaviour. They called the police and said, we need you to come and start getting these guys for speeding. Who was the first people to get done? They were. Exactly, right? So here's, what, here's, the, here's, here's the moral. If you're going to invite the God of justice, the police of justice into your life, you have to be prepared to face the God of justice. That's all I'm saying. Malachi's words to his people are clear. You want a God of justice, you're going to get him and you're not going to survive it. Unless, unless, unless you trust in this one that all of the prophets have been pointing to, this Messiah, this saviour, this promised king of Israel who might come and rescue, save, deliver his people. And that's where he goes, right at the end here. He gives us a little pointer, a little shadow of what's to come in the next testament, in the next covenant. So if you look at verse 16 of chapter 3, let's go 16 and 17. He says, at that time, should be a capital T. This is the time all of them have been talking about. At that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord took notice and listened. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and had high regard for his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of armies, my own possession on the day I am preparing. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. And further, verse 1 to 2 of chapter 4, For look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches. But for you... For you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the store. What characterises God's people, according to Malachi, in those two passages we just read, is a fear of the Lord. Why is that what characterises them in his context? It's because it's, it's the opposite of nominalism. People who go through the motions, focus on outward ritual over inward substance, they have zero fear of God. Zero. Fear, the fear of God is, uh, how did I describe it to you a couple of weeks ago? Oh, remember that, not that Saturday night where, where they, we had this huge thunderstorm, woke all of our family up, just shook our house. Our response to that, being woken up by something that huge, is a little bit like the fear of the Lord. It's an acknowledgement that God is immense. And then we add to that our deep knowledge that he is immense and loving. Loving. 
He is, he is the cataclysmic rumble of a storm in the middle of the night and he is the warm, close embrace of a mother with her children, right? He is both of those things and those things together produce a fear, a reverence for God, which is characterised by, let me go to that quote again, characterised by this kind of worship and then I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm done, right? The nature of the fear of God The nature of of reverence, the nature of true worship is worship that does two things. It expresses the feeling of God's value and greatness and it seeks to sustain in the congregation, all of us here, that same spiritual sense of God's immense worth and beauty. What the minor prophets have been trying to do with us the last few months, what they've been trying to do is get us to this point Get, to, get us to this point when we understand that God is a judge and that all of us are deserving of his wrath and punishment, absolutely deserving of his condemnation. They've pointed us forward to someone that they didn't yet fully know, pointed us forward to a Messiah king who would also be a suffering servant who would give himself for the salvation of God's people And they want us to see all of that, hold it together so that our response would be one of worship in spirit and truth. That's what God wants. God wants, God desires, God is jealous for worshippers this morning. One of the ways we worship is by singing God's praises. We're going to do that in just a second. Another way that we worship is by Positioning ourselves as people of dependence and humility, asking, asking of him things in prayer. And so we're going to do both of those. We're going to get you to stand. We're going to get you to, we're going to ask you to participate in acknowledging God's worthiness in song. We're also going to invite you to come, come and pray with someone. There are people down here who pray for me every week and it's the best part of my week. You can have some of that too, all right? Come forward, ask them to pray for ailment. Ask them to pray for psychological healing, ask them to pray for good family relations at Christmas time. I don't know, ask them to pray for anything at all and they'll pray for you. Ask them to pray that God would give you a heart full of affection for him. They'd love to do that. How about we pray together? Father, we thank you for this series. We've had this, the pleasure of diving deep into your word We thank you for these men we call the minor prophets, these 12 who were bold to speak the truth to your people. And we thank you that they continue to speak today. I pray, Lord, this is my prayer. This is my prayer, Lord, that that in this place, that, that this place would be a place of worship in spirit and in truth that this place, these people would be an antidote to nominalism. That that, that you would make us like a, a vaccine against dead religion. And that by your spirit, more and more and more, more and more and more, people would come to see you for who you truly are. We honour you. You are worthy.
of all of our praise, of all of our days. Lord, help us to make all of life all about Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.